A flower by any other name may smell just as sweet, but how much would you pay for it? It's the Dutch tulip craze today on Footnoting History. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Nathan, and welcome to Footnoting History. So today, we're going to be looking at two strangely related topics, namely botany and economics. Now, most of you have probably heard of an economic bubble. Those of you who grew up in the 90s will remember the dot-com bubble, which burst at the turn of the century. And, of course, everyone not living under a rock remembers the collapse of the housing market five years ago. And I'm trying very hard not to think about the fact that that was five years ago. Anyway, today I want to talk about the first recorded economic bubble, or what could have been the first economic bubble, except historians still debate about whether or not it was actually a bubble. We begin our story in the 16th century, which was the age of exploration and the birth of European global trading empires. This was an exciting and exceedingly lucrative period in European history, as voyages were mounted to explore the newly discovered Americas, as well as find faster, safer trade routes to the resource-rich areas of Southeast Asia. Why the sudden interest in trade with these far-off places? Well, as with so many things in history, it's complicated. Mostly, it has to do with money and the fact that you could buy goods on the cheap in Asia and mark them up by several hundred or even thousand percent for resale in European markets. But one other reason was the attraction of the exotic, of the new and the varied. Although Europeans had been in contact with the cultures of Asia for millennia, and spices, cloth, plants, and animals, particularly from China and India, had been present in European markets for at least three or four centuries, they were always incredibly expensive, the purview of the wealthy, which usually meant nobility. Throughout the end of the 15th and the beginning of the 16th century, however, increased trade with Asia, particularly after the discovery that you could get there by sailing around the southern tip of Africa instead of having to go over land, meant that the European market was inundated with these luxury goods. With increased supply came decreased price, which, in turn, increased demand as more and more people could afford things like porcelain from China or nutmeg from Indonesia. One of the consequences of all of this increased trade is that Europeans became ever more fascinated by exotica. One way in which this obsession manifested itself was a collecting impulse. You would have wealthy merchants and even some aristocrats who would spend enormous amounts of money collecting relics and treasures from far-off places, things like seashells, stuffed animals, butterfly species from all around the world. Some collections were less specialized and were more like modern-day museums, which for the most part didn't exist in the 16th century. This fascination with the exotic was particularly a characteristic of the very merchant class which was responsible for bringing these goods and curiosities to Europe. And nowhere was the merchant class stronger than in the Dutch Republic, what we today would call the Netherlands, or at least the northern part of what is today the Netherlands. Although they began the century as a possession of the Habsburg dynasty, which ruled the Holy Roman Empire and then Spain, in the 1560s and 70s, the northern provinces broke away from their Spanish Habsburg overlords and in 1581 declared themselves as an independent republic. Thus began what is commonly known as the Dutch Golden Age, a century of unprecedented economic growth and cultural production, fueled largely by trade with Southeast Asia. During their Golden Age, the Dutch kind of invented the modern capitalist economic system, 
They founded enormously powerful trading companies to facilitate their new commercial empire. The most famous of these was, of course, the Dutch East India Company, which obtained a two-decade monopoly on trade with Indonesia and was the very first company to have publicly traded stock. In fact, the Dutch East India Company creates the very first stock exchange at the beginning of the 17th century, and at its pinnacle, the company will be worth the modern equivalent of several trillion dollars. Which brings us to flowers, which actually play a huge role in this entire process of empire building and global trade, though I'll save discussion of the importance of the poppy in opening up trade with China for a later podcast. Flowers were one of the luxury items entering European markets in the 16th century. Rare and exotic plants were highly prized for their beauty, and the 16th century is also when we start seeing the widespread creation of private flower gardens in Europe. Previously, gardens were largely utilitarian, and plants were grown more for their usage in cooking, medicine, and other practical applications, like as dyes, rather than because they were pretty. With the rise of this new merchant and artisan class, though, ownership of rare and exotic flowers was something of a status symbol, a sign of wealth, and even erudition, because you had to know something about the flowers, how rare they were, where they came from, how to care for them, in order to appreciate them. Several flower species were particularly prone to this type of collection, including irises, hyacinths, and, the subject of our podcast, tulips. Tulips were not native to Europe, and originally they were brought from the Ottoman Empire in the mid-16th century. By the 1580s, they were being cultivated throughout Western Europe, and they particularly thrived in the soils of the Netherlands. Now, to understand why the Dutch middle class became so fascinated by tulips and why they became so expensive, we have to understand a little bit about botany and how this flower species reproduces. The flowering period for tulips is very short, only a couple of weeks in late spring, uh, April or early May, depending on the weather. Tulips also take a very, very long time to grow from seeds. It can easily take 8 to 10 years or even longer for a tulip to go from a seed to a flower-producing plant. But if you're not willing to wait around that long, you can also use buds produced by the parent bulb. These buds are called offsets, and they are genetically identical to the parent plant, obviously because they come from the same bulb. Flowering plants can be grown from these offsets within just a couple of years. In addition to all of this, you have to take these offsets when the bulb is dormant, which is during the summer months. It is only during the summer that bulbs can be dug up and moved, or traded, without killing the plant. Tulip bulbs, by the way, in case you've never seen one, look a lot like um, shallots or large chestnuts. Which brings us to color. Most tulips in the 16th century were a single vibrant color, and color varieties were all over the spectrum, from yellow to red to white to purple. But tulips are also one of the species of plant which are prone to a specific kind of virus, known as mosaic virus. A mosaic virus infects a plant and causes its leaves or its flower petals to take on a mottled or striped appearance. And in tulips, this produces a very beautiful multi-tone striped flower, which the Dutch collectors went nuts for, as it was unlike anything that they had ever seen in Europe. However, the mosaic virus does not change the genetic makeup of the flower, so any seeds that are grown from a plant infected with the virus will not produce mottled or striped flowers. The only way you can replicate it is either by grafting part of a separate tulip bulb onto an infected bulb, which won't produce a flower exactly like the original infected bulb, or through offsets from the infected bulb, and even then, identical bloom appearance is not guaranteed. 
Moreover, a side effect of the virus is that infected bulbs will degenerate very quickly after they flower. So what does all of this mean for Dutch collectors who like tulips? In short, because they were so difficult to cultivate, thus keeping supply relatively low, and because the most beautiful and sought-after varieties were even more difficult to propagate, tulips were primed to become a high-value luxury item for this new market of middle-class trading. The trade in tulips began in the very late 16th century, and even as early as the 16-teens, they were being sold for not ridiculous, but certainly not cheap sums of money. In the 1630s, however, their popularity suddenly skyrocketed, especially in France. Uh, More on that in a moment. Now, because tulips bloom in the spring but can only be moved in the summer, this affected the way that they were traded. Normally, sellers and buyers, or people acting as their proxies, would negotiate a price for the tulip bulb. Uh, These bulbs, by the way, are frequently sold by weight, since the bigger the bulb, the more potential offsets it could produce. Sometimes the sale would happen in the spring, when the buyer could see the tulip in bloom. Sometimes it happened in the winter or autumn, when the bulb was bought sight unseen. Since it could only be moved in the summer, the two parties would negotiate a contract, which named an agreed-upon price to be paid at the delivery of the bulb in the summer. What happens in the 1630s is that these contracts begin to be traded. This creates a kind of futures market, where people start buying and selling contracts for the eventual purchase of the bulbs, rather than the bulbs themselves. For people with these contracts, selling them could be incredibly lucrative, as you only paid a small fee up front, which was a percentage of the final price of the bulb, in order to set up the contract. And as long as you sold your contract at a price above that upfront fee, whatever you get beyond that amount is pure profit, with very little initial investment on your part. Well, this in turn causes the owners of the bulbs to increase the price even further, because they want in on the action and the demand is there. Well, you can see how this would snowball, and it does, and a speculation bubble is born, particularly after the tulip becomes popular in France, and the French start injecting money into the Dutch tulip market. People start forming trading groups, or colleges, for the purpose of sharing the burden of what are now very expensive tulip bulbs. While the number of people who actually engage in tulip trading remains fairly small, more and more people are drawn in as buyers recruit members of their family, neighbors, and colleagues to help be part of the trading network. The market really began to pick up in 1634, but the boom of the tulip trade happened in the fall and winter of 1636 to 1637. By this point, what initially had started as a trade among tulip aficionados and growers, most of whom were upper middle class, expanded to include artisans, doctors, lawyers, teachers, and other middle class professionals. As more people entered this trade, the volume of trading likewise increased, which means that these contracts were trading hands more and more frequently during the off-season, before the bulbs had to be paid for. Consequently, prices soared, and the price of certain tulips reached absolutely astronomical levels. While trying to render these prices into a modern equivalent is a little difficult because of the way that purchasing power works and how much prices of various goods have changed in the last 400 years, to give you an idea of the amount, some bulbs were selling for the equivalent of several years' salary for a skilled craftsman. And people didn't always pay cash. It was common, even as late as the 17th century, for a trading kind to happen. So some people paid for tulips with quantities of grain or with, say, real estate. Uh, One man was even contracted to swap a house for some tulip bulbs. These examples, though, were the exception rather than the rule. And most tulip prices, though incredibly high, weren't quite this exorbitant. 
Nevertheless, the price of tulips in some cases quadrupled, and for one bulb, the Admiral de Man, the price increased by a factor of 10 over the course of a month between January and February of 1637 at the peak of the bubble. As with most economic bubbles, this one was exceedingly fragile. In early February of 1637, the trade in tulip futures ground to a halt and the prices plummeted. What exactly caused this drop? Well, and I know this is going to be disappointing, but this is another one of those instances in history where we just don't know the exact precipitating cause. In fact, figuring out the reason why the market collapsed is made incredibly difficult by the fact that once it does collapse, the social backlash causes a number of stories to be circulated, some of which simply are not true. The most common story is that at one market in Harlem in early February, no tulip buyers showed up to complete negotiations, causing a run on the market from scared sellers. Whether or not this story is true, there is the potential that the tulip market had become too saturated with bulbs, or was poised to become so, or speculators feared that this massive inflation simply could not continue and began to quickly pull out of the market. Whatever the cause, the collapse of the market had instantaneous and serious consequences for the Dutch. In the two years preceding the crisis, the Dutch courts had seen more and more litigation where people had purchased contracts and, come June, simply didn't have the funds to pay or refused to do so. Once the tulips began to bloom in April of 1637, more and more bulb owners began to sue to enforce payment from those people holding contracts for the bulbs. But many of these buyers didn't want to pay, as the bulbs were now worth a fraction of their original contract price. The Dutch government never really arrived at an effective solution to this problem. It basically just told the local provincial government to try and get everyone to come to an amicable arrangement, which rarely happened. Eventually, they established special flower commissions to try and arbitrate these disputes. But the standard solution was for the buyers to pay a fee called a raukop, or grieving money, which was a small percentage of the price of the tulip, and call it a done deal. This pleased neither buyers nor sellers, and some of these tulip litigations went on for years without any resolution. I should note, though, that according to historian Anne Goldgar, very few, if any, buyers or sellers were totally financially ruined by the collapse of the tulip market. Some of these people did find themselves in dire straits because they had been speculating in other markets, but practically no one was immediately thrown into destitution and poverty. It did, though, rock Dutch society to its core, because contract enforcement was based on mutual trust and an honest business relationship. The group engaged in this trading was never very large, which is part of the argument against the claims that it crippled the Dutch economy, and so buyers and sellers often knew each other. The failure, or refusal to pay, thus damaged the fabric of the community and the trust that was needed to maintain order and the common good. The claim that this bubble ruined many lives and completely wrecked the Dutch economy is in fact part of the afterlife of this event. Even before the market collapsed, there were many people who decried the entire tulip trade as useless and ridiculous. Tulips had no practical use, they said, and therefore had no intrinsic value other than as a vanity item. After the bubble burst, these critics started screaming even louder, decrying the greed and stupidity of the Blumstein, the flower lovers who got involved in this entire mess. The tulip bubble immediately became tulip mania, a kind of moralist tale against greed and unwise investing. This almost pedagogical use of tulip mania reached its pinnacle in 1841, when the Scottish author Charles Mackay published a book entitled Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. In the book, Mackay tells a pretty hyperbolic version of the tulip crisis. 
in addition to recounting several other speculative bubbles of the 18th century, and he propagates many of the myths regarding the mania part of tulip mania. To some extent, he also popularizes the event, and so today, any time an economic bubble collapses, tulip mania tends to get trotted out as an excuse to point and laugh and talk about how speculation in futures markets are just stupid and silly and won't we ever learn. There is, by the way, even a tulip mania board game, for those of you who are looking for the perfect Christmas present. It's important to remember, however, that speculative bubbles rarely seem ridiculous before they burst, and they can actually reveal a great deal about social relationships and the way that economic value is created. Remember that the next time you walk by a flea market and see Star Wars collectibles for sale. After all, one man's trash is another man's tulip. This has been Footnoting History. If you liked our podcast, be sure to check us out on the web at footnotinghistory.com, like us on our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Join us next week when we'll be talking about a Native American protest occupation of Alcatraz Prison. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!